The second film in Guillermo del Toro's proposed Spanish Civil War trilogy, Pan's Labyrinth, would prove to be the film which finally saw del Toro explode into public consciousness. As he once more brought his own spin to his love of fairy tales to tell the tale of Ophelia, a young girl who, upon meeting a fawn, discovers that she may just be the reincarnated form of the underworld princess Moana. However, to return home, she must complete three tasks. All the while, her dominating stepfather, Captain Vidal, continues to wage war against the remaining Republican rebels. Massively blending genres to craft a very adult fairy tale, Del Toro foregoed offers from American studios in order to maintain complete control, a gamble which would unquestionably prove to be the film's masterstroke, as he crafted perhaps what is arguably one of the best films of his career. I'm Elwood. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. Here we are. We're obviously now on to Pan's Labyrinth, and I think this is the film which I think is probably the best known of the Del Toro filmography. Certainly, when we you ask anyone what they think about Del Toro's films, I think they will always talk about Pan's Labyrinth first, and then perhaps they may mention like Hellboy or Blade Two. Uh, if you're lucky, they mention some of like his earlier Spanish films like Cronus and Devil's Backbone. But there's something about Pan's Labyrinth that really struck a, a chord not only with like critics and sort of foreign la- cinema, foreign language cinema fans, um, but just like regular moviegoers. Even though this film was never like dubbed, um, it it just somehow struck a chord, sort of like Battle Royale. It just uh, didn't seem to matter the fact that it was a subtitle movie. And I'm for one, I'm just really excited to talk about this evening, and uh, more so the fact that we have a have a guest tonight. And uh, Kim Dumming, do you want to introduce who uh, is our special guest tonight? Well, our guest is Norman from Flick Hunter. Welcome, Norman. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Pan's Labyrinth is one of my favorite uh, films, actually. I really enjoy it and i um, anxious to talk about it. That's cool. And uh, obviously, uh, so Flick Hunter, I mean, what's your sort of normal focus of, uh, of your, your film watching and film sort of writing? Yeah, so my site kind of came out of going to the Toronto International Film Festival year after year, um, seeing more and more movies. I started going in 97 and uh, got up to seeing 50 movies, taking notes, uh, met a lot of people, saw they had started blogs online and were getting uh, credentials and passes to go to other film festivals. And that's where it started. So... My main focus is uh, film festival movies and attending film festivals. And I now know quite a few publicists, so I go to some screenings in and around Toronto. 
and I'll see the odd big blockbuster, but that's not my focus. It's more contemporary foreign film and uh, film festivals. Okay. And is there any sort of directors that you like to look out for when you go to festivals, or is it just more sort of like plot and synopsis that sort of draw you into the films that you choose to watch? No, I like seeing the progression. I like seeing the progression of directors. Um, because at TIFF, you can kind of watch them come all the way through and make it all the way up to the case. Uh, like Suzanne Beer, I saw Open Your Hearts a few years back, and it kept on building on that. Um, even uh, Steve McQueen uh, saw Hunger, and then it built to Shame, and then it built to his Oscar-winning movie. So there's a lot of that going on. So there's a whole crew that I like to see. Okay. And, uh, I mean, obviously, while we're talking about Steve McQueen, I mean, do you... Do you feel that he was a bit unfairly snubbed with Widows not getting any sort of recognition at this year's Oscars? No, I don't think he was snubbed. I think there was quite a series of good movies, and that was just one of the ones that was involved in the, the whole series. So I think there's a lot out there, so I, I didn't uh, think it was snubbed. There was, there was so, this was a very good year. There were so many good movies this year, so I don't think it was a snub. Um, it was a high action-packed film, but I think there were better choices out there. Maybe not Bohemian Rhapsody, but there were better choices out there. Yeah, well, less said about Bohemian Rhapsody, I think the better, really. I think I think when Freddie Mercury died, I think everything that Queen have done from that point on has been a cash cow. And certainly when Sasha Bowen Cowan left the project, um, it was just clear it was just another, another payday for the band. And I just, uh, I've chosen to have nothing to do with that band whatsoever now, because... It just, um, I think we're now going to be, now that that's had sort of the Oscar attention, I've just seen like, we just had the trailer for The Dirt, the Motley Crue biopic, we've obviously got the David Bowie biopic coming out, and we've also, I think there's another John Lennon biopic coming out as well, because, you know, just the world just needs another biopic of that phony saint, don't they? So, but, um, I mean. There's an Elton John one coming as well with uh, yeah, that guy from The Kingsman, that's coming out. I know with uh, Rocket Man again. I'm not sure with with, with is there is there a particular angle of the Rocket Elton John story everyone's sort of dying to know. Um, Kim, do you want to see an Elton John biopic? Um, I don't watch biopics in general. I watch like maybe one every two years, so it's not really like something that interests me. So no. <laughs> I just I just can't see the hook, and that's why I'm always looking for like. When I saw like Social Network and when we look at um, Steve Jobs, it was like there was the hook there. And with these biopics that come out, it's just so by the numbers. It just um, there's just nothing there to sort of hook me in. But I mean, it's a very controversial lineup for this year's Best Picture. I mean, we obviously got Marvel's Black Panther, first uh, superhero movie to receive an Oscar nomination. If we obviously, you know, take away Birdman, uh, which could be argued was the first one. So, I mean. Generally, how are we obviously feeling about this year's Oscars? I mean, a lot of people are saying that they're just don't, they're not having anything to do with it this year. That uh, there's too much politics, and obviously, who's been obviously nominated for Best Picture, especially as we mentioned already, Widows didn't get mentioned, Hereditary didn't get a mention. So, there's uh, I think it's certainly one of the more controversial years for for the films up for Best Picture this year. Well, I mean, seeing that, I heard yesterday that there was like I, I haven't been following the Oscars thing, mm. so if it was announced way earlier, I didn't know about it. Um, that I was watching TV and I was saying that like there's no host for Oscars this year, which is really odd. Um, but 
I don't know. I mean, other than that, I don't really know who's being nominated. A lot of people are saying, like, I've heard a lot of people say A Star is Born is, should should win Best Picture, but I, I don't know. I've never seen that before either. No, it's 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 losing its momentum, Star is Born. I saw that at TIFF. It was a big film at TIFF. And uh, ever th- since it's been losing its momentum, and then Bradley Cooper didn't get his um, Best Director nomination and said he was embarrassed by that. And which kind of started off a Twitter storm with people saying, well, all these great female directors directed movies this year. And this one time first director is embarrassed he didn't get a nomination. So that started a big storm. So um, Roma, Roma is a masterpiece. I don't know if either of you have seen it, but it's the best movie I've seen in about three years. It's it's such a well done film. That's on so Netflix, hoping, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's on Netflix right now. So I'm hoping that's going to win, but, but we'll see. Um, Green Book might win. Um, and Bohemian Rhapsody might even win. So who knows? Yeah, it's um, it, it's a, it just seems like a very weird year for the Oscars all around. I think if they're looking for a host, I mean, they might as well just ask Ben. I think he's got time to, to do it. I mean, he's doing everything else in the film community, so why not let him the, the Oscars? So. Um. <laughs> But no, I mean, I think uh, you certainly made a very sort of valid pick for what could could possibly uh, stick. I mean, I've heard a lot of good hype, and I mean, certainly I've heard the guys over at French Hill Sunday have been very excited about it. And I think, I mean, Netflix really. I think since what was it, um, Annihilation? Since they picked up um, Annihilation, they've sort of really just become more and more the powerhouse, and having to be respected as a studio, um, which we never thought we'd see from a a streaming service, that they would be able to compete with, like, the big boys of the Hollywood system. And uh, yet here they are, obviously, with perhaps one of the big contenders for this year's Best Picture. So, I think that all started last year. Like, that big surprise when they had that Cloverfield paradox. Like, no one even knew that was being shot. And then after the Super Bowl, they said... Coming up on Netflix, Cloverfield Paradox last year, and like, what? Yeah. What? Where's this coming from? And it's kind of built from there, I think. Yeah, I still haven't seen Cloverfield Paradox, so I can't say what I did. I heard some mixed things when it came out. I was very excited the fact that they were able to just sneak a movie out because I mean, it's always exciting when they're able to, especially in this day and age where everyone knows what everybody's doing, when they can sneak a movie out like that. Uh, like even when we had like the Blair Witch sort of sequel of sorts uh man and wingard came out i thought that was really great that how they snuck that one out so uh i would love more surprises going into the new movie year uh if we can have more sort of surprises like that it would just be uh fantastic but at the moment uh at the moment it's, it's just as i said it's just such a a turbulent time uh with with uh, what's obviously out there at the moment, and I think it's now now at the time for myself, I'm just saying the time to look, sort of catch up because at the moment everything that's coming out isn't really sort of grabbing my attention. But uh, I don't know about you, you guys. I mean, is there anything you're still excited to see that's coming out? Or I'm looking forward to the next Dragon movie that's coming out this weekend. Yeah, me too. That's pretty much that's very much <laughs> what I'm looking forward. To. I like I like these lighthearted things like. Like when December comes around and it's all like Oscar bait starts coming out, I kind of don't really think about it too much because I don't know. I'm not into drama so much anymore. Um, Unless it's like something like Hidden Figures and all down for that, you know, but 
um, normal Oscar bait stuff I usually take a break from. So, uh, yeah, so dragons I'm interested in. Lots of other things are coming out, I think, but I'm not, I don't, I don't remember right now um, what else is coming out that I'm interested in. Yeah, I understand what you're saying there, Kim. I think whenever you have, like, these Oscar bait movies, it's sort of like, go to cinema for three hours and feel bad. And it's like, I don't want to feel bad. I want to watch something, like, fun and lighthearted. So, I mean, why can't we get behind that train for winning Best Daughter Pictures, people, no, happy movies? I mean, on to, obviously, talk about Pan Labyrinth now. I mean, no one, for yourself, where was the entry point for the Del Toro filmography for yourself? Uh, my entry point was actually Hellboy. That was the first uh, Del Toro film that I saw. And uh, just comparing it to Pens and even to uh, Shape of Water, you can kind of see the elements of his arc on how he's going to make films um, from Hellboy. Um, the fantasy lands involved, um, authority figures are involved, and uh, a big theme I find with Del Toro throughout his films is a disobedience, and you can see that from Hellboy. You know, kind of thumbing your nose at authority, um, that's, yeah, that's where it started. And, I mean, obviously this is another of his Spanish language films, and for myself, I always find that when he's free of the Hollywood system, he's always doing his best work, and certainly his most creative work. And we saw it with Devil's Backbone, we saw it with Kronos, and again, we see it here with Pan's Labyrinth. And there's just a real sort of freedom to the work that he's he's producing for his Spanish language films that I think just really makes him sort of stand out. And I... And, I don't think this film would have ever been made if it had gone through the Hollywood system. I think he made the right choice in just going uh, the independent route. I mean, it was the director of Gravity, um, Alfonso Cruz. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong. There. Alfonso Cuaron. That's the one. Thank you, Kim. Um, who basically, he was a big fan of Dills Backbone and said, you know, whatever film you want to make, I will back it. And this is what they came together to do. I mean, this bizarre civil war fairy tale film that on paper it sounds like it should never work i mean you've got two very opposing genres there yet somehow delta manages to blend the real world the fantasy world once again and amazing the fact that here we have a real world that's a very violent very dark world and at the same time we've got a sort of very uh imaginative and fantastical world that he's putting it side by side to and yet there never seems to be this line between the two worlds. It's very blends very nicely into one another. But um, opening thoughts on obviously Pan's Labyrinth, I mean, what is it that sort of appeals to us? I'm assuming that we're all sort of fans of this film. Yes, for sure. Uh, the story, just how we how we kind of borrows from stor- from uh, other fairy tales. Um, even when Ophelia's opening the book. That's very rep- reminiscent of how the Walt Disney movies kind of work. Like a book opens and at the beginning of Sleeping Beauty, at the beginning of Snow White. Yep, Ophelia, she sneaks into the bathroom, opens the book, and it's blank. Then it begins to fill in. Um, just how he borrows. Um, even down to her clicking the heels of those red shoes, which is right out of um, Wizard of Oz, of course. And just how he uses and borrows and doesn't follow any rules when when he wants to do his fairy tale. Um, he starts at the end. Like, what is the first shot of the movie? The first shot is her dead, right? That's where he yeah. starts and works backwards from there. It's just mm-hmm. it's just wonderfully done. Yeah, I think it was on this occasion, this actual viewing, they noticed that 
the film rewinds itself, the blood actually is seen going back into her head. I didn't exactly. realize it. I didn't realize it just like because before I always thought it was sort of like we see that end shot and then we're into her introduction and her driving with her mother in the car. But no, you actually see the blood actually going back. So he is rewinding time to take us back to the beginning. But um, Kim, I mean, did you like this film or you're not a fan? Where do you sort of stand? No, I definitely. Um, Pan's Labyrinth, I think, was probably the first film that I consciously knew was Del Toro. Yeah, no, I mean, it's one of my um, it's one of my favorite films, actually, from Del Toro. And it's definitely my entry point into the Del Toro filmography, at least consciously. I think I had seen um, snippets of probably Hellboy and Blade 2 and stuff on TV once uh, once or something before. But um, I mean, I remember seeing Pan's Labyrinth. And then um, shortly after I saw that uh, Pacific Rim was coming out and I got really excited for that. So, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is, like, I really love it because I always like kind of, like, this um, nice take on, like, um, kind of, like, adult fairy tales. Um, there's this really, I don't know, I get very attracted to um, subjects like that. Yeah. I mean, certainly the uh, the whole concept of adult fairy tales, I mean, it's done so, so very rarely. I mean... The only other directors I can think of would be like Jeanette and Cara, who obviously did like their contestants to the Lost Children. But even then, it's more it's very clear in the fact that it's a it's an adult world. Where here, even though we've obviously got many adult sort of themes, and the fact that Tildora had to put on the advertising in his uh, native Mexico, the fact that this film wasn't suitable for children after they received so many complaints from parents who were like taking their kids to see this movie, thinking it was like a fun family fantasy and obviously getting something very different when they saw the film. They weren't expecting Pale Man chewing the head off, the heads off of fairies, I guess. Well, I mean, the whole Pale Man sequence, when the film was premiered, uh, he actually, Dato invited Stephen King and um, his son Joe Hill to see the film and Stephen King's sitting next to Del Toro and the Pale Man sequence comes on and, and King's there squirming away and Del Toro basically said that was the equivalent of him getting an Oscar. He'd never been so proud of his film, just the fact that he managed to unnerve the master of horror with this sequence. And certainly when I showed it to my, my father, um, I didn't tell him anything about this this film. I just said that, you know, this is a film I really want you to watch. And we watched the Pelman sequence. And he was actively shouting at the screen during the whole sequence when she picks up the uh, at the grapes. And she's yeah. like, no, what are you doing? <laughs> and the whole Pelman sequence, I mean, it's this twisted take on obviously uh, the, stig- the wounds of stigmata the fact that um the fact he has these holes in his hands which obviously where his, his eyes go which is i mean that was the whole the sole image which saw me on the film i didn't know anything about it I saw doug jones as the with these eyes in his hands and i was like wow that is such an interesting image i want to see what this movie is now but yeah eating the uh, heads of the fairy is probably the most grotesque and unnerving scene in this whole film and there's some really unsettling violence in this film i mean we see um suspected rebels being beaten to death we see uh, um the her stepfather gets like a really nasty knife wound to the face which leaks booze out of it when he drinks and oh this i don't know if I, i should be like uh relish or be disgusted by the violence in this movie i mean Del Toro's approach to violence, I mean, he's a self-confessed pe- um, pacifist. 
yet he has these, as we've seen throughout his filmography, he has these very grotesque images. I mean, how do we find the violence in this film? I think it's, we were, now we're obviously talking about the film, and I mean, how does the violence and uh, sort of the horror elements stack up for you guys? Well, it's definitely, I think, I think we've really been talking about how the violence has kind of progressed throughout his filmography. You know, in Kronos, we started out with kind of like, you still had blood, but it wasn't, you know, as, it was just like, you know, it was a bit disturbing, but not really, like, violent, violent. But then, you know, now as we've progressed through to up till now, um, Pan's Labyrinth is, I think, the most violent one and also the one, probably the most blood-soaked at this point um, that we've seen. I mean, it's it's really hard to, like, it's hard to imagine because, you know, Blade 2 had a lot of killing, but there wasn't as much blood in my memory of it. So it's it's like here is very visual too. You have all these like you know like like you said that knife wound and you know all those um you know, like the torture methods that you know the captain was showing to make the make them tell the truth and you know all these like little little meticulous little things and details that he puts in that makes it just like whether it's you know the fantasy world or whether it's like like the real life both of them are are really dark and really creepy in its own way. Yeah, even when the captain is, brings out his tools and goes, we'll start with this one, mm-hmm. and this this one's going to be last, and just that type of stuff even. And then when they torture that, uh, that poor rebel that has the stutter, and, um, well, if you can say this clearly three times, and you can go, and just, just the whole building and the, like having, you know, like a, a spider into your thumb and letting it squirm and like holding one of its legs yeah. down and then you can start taking all the legs off. That type of, it's pretty cruel actually, some of the stuff in this film. Yeah, definitely. But it all works. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, certainly when we look, as you said already, Kim, when we look at the violence in, in other films, it doesn't seem as graphic um, as it does in this film and certainly there are obviously those elements of violence and when we look at like Hellboy, you've got sort of substitutions for the violence like when he's beating the monster in the subway with a gumball machine, and we see the gumballs flying out, and that's that's a representation of the blood and the gore. Um, he's choosing to use other things, and same when we get into Pacific Rim, the focus is there on more the destruction than the loss of human life. Yet here he's, it, it's as I say, it's a very more raw uh, film, and certainly it comes closer to when I can see why it's a. Uh, part of a trilogy with uh, Devil's Backbone because certainly the violence is very similar in those two films and I think Devil's Backbone we commented before just how cold the violence is especially when we look at the the evil uh, sort of caretaker and how ruthless he is just like killing his fiance um, and just what he would go to to get the hold of the, the rebel gold in that film and here we see where we've got obviously the her stepfather's character and He's very single-minded. I mean, he knows he's got a job to do, and he doesn't care what it takes to get the job done. He's sort of like, he's a true believer of this cause that he is fighting for, and at the same time, he believes that everything else is going to fall in line. I mean, the... I mean, are we obviously familiar with uh, with, with uh, Sergi Lopez's work at all? I mean, obviously saw our first introduction to him as an actor. I think that was my first introduction to him. Because, mm-hmm. mm. um, I mean, he's actually more best known for comedies and light-hearted fare, so 
he did. Del Toro was actually very criticised when he when he talked about uh, casting him, and he said that you know your comments have been sort of noted, but I'm going to ignore them and press ahead. And <laughs> I think it it's just one of the many risks he took off on this this film, and it just pays off like tenfold. And again, such so falls into that category that we see time and time again in the Del Toro movies, and he's the handsome brute. He's this he's... good-looking guy who does horrible things. Yeah, he's he's the evil pretty much. It's it's like the the person with the that emphasizes how the human nature is the worst part of, you know, all this. Like your fantasy creatures are bad, you know, the the fawn is very um like manipulative in his own way, but but like the captain is completely like crazy. Like he does all kinds of things and he's very like self-centered in his own way and he's very like you know, and, you know, when we talk about the violence before, I was thinking about how everything really lends to kind of build this tension that kind of ramps up from the beginning till, you know, the big finale at the end. I also find as well, like I I found on this rewatch of it, comparing it a lot to Shape of Water, because, mm. of course, that just won the Oscar. And I was comparing the captain a lot to Michael Shannon's character, Richard Gerkland. Yeah. And the same true believer will do what it what by any any means necessary. I have to get the job done. I don't care who I have to torture or hurt. I found them as com- kind of like parallels, and uh, I was really focused on that. And the, the Sally Hawkins character would be like Ophelia, and then the Octavia Spencer character would be like Mercedes, and they're kind of the ones that are disobedient and disruptive. And kind of battling authority and power. I kind of, in my mind, they were kind of running parallel as I was on the rewatch. I agree with that, but um, yeah, we're gonna walk away from Shape of Water because sorry. Elwood Elwood hasn't seen it yet. No, okay, sorry. <laughs> so try to not to spoil it for him. But yeah, no, there are a lot of parallels, and I think that Del Toro um, really. Uh, I feel like as he progresses in his career, we also see these characters. Like not only does he like to reuse a really reuse a lot of the cast that he's worked with before, but he also likes to um, take certain elements from other things. Like the fairy creatures here reminded me a lot of um, the creatures in Hellboy 2. Oh, the tooth fairies. Yeah, the tooth fairies. Yeah. It reminded me a little of that. Um, there were, there's other things, you know, obviously that, that go on. And I mean, um, Del Toro is really great at storytelling because of, you know, how he's able to tell all these stories together, right? Like, there's different tales at the same time. And this one is the first time I've noticed how throughout the film, he actually, like, talks a lot. Like, we start off with, obviously, the um, the underground realm and, you know, how she's, um, uh, how she's, like, she has to get back to this fantasy world to be, to the, this underground realm to be, like, Princess Moana. Um but, like, we start the movie with kind of its own fairy tale. And then throughout, she reads another fairy tale to her little brother. And then she has these little tales throughout that that, that are talked about. And I, re- I really, really like that aspect of it. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. I think the thing with this film, and I, something I really like about it, is the fact that you can split, you could take either side of the tale and have a very sort of complete movie. You could just have her going around and completing this task and just have her interactions with the form. Because, I mean, I don't know about yourselves, but the first time I saw the film, I was sure the, the form was going to be turned out to be like Double Cross and be like this evil character, and that he's basically manipulating her into 
performing these tasks so he can gain some greater goal. And that it's all just like a big ruse. But so I was very surprised when it turned out that, no, he was actually trying to help her get back to the underworld, um, even though it perhaps doesn't have the happy ending, I think, a Hollywood system would push for. Um, I know that, again, Del Toro's talked about this whole having her, and, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, um, the end for Ophelia um, has a lot to tie into sort of his beliefs in, like, martyrdom and and that's the reason that the film ends the way it does. But yeah, I mean, even when we look at the look at the Civil War um, sort of storyline that's happening here, and we've got all this sort of intrigue, and we've got all these little things that are happening beneath the surface. So you've got like the housekeeper, and she's in league with like the Doctor, and she's got helping the rebels who are out in the forest, and just that whole storyline, and just again the. The housekeeper, I think, is such an underrated character in this film. Just the fact that she's constantly being like this double agent. The fact she's there, she's um, working right under the nose of like the captain himself. So she's like getting glances at the maps and she's trying to get information out to the rebel side in the woods by like saying she's going for firewood. And just the fact she hides the knife in her in her apron. There's just so many things about that the housekeeper character I just really really like. So. Yeah, you know the housekeeper, um, uh, you're talking about Mercedes, right? Yeah, I'm talking about Mercedes. Yeah, like Mercedes reminded me a lot of, um, like a more uh, fleshed out version of um, Conchita in um, Devil's Backbone. Mm, very much. Yeah, and it, it's like, there's like this, you know, we were talking about how, you know, the characters have parallels. And that kind of like re- brought up this this idea of how... Like, it really, like, this is one of my best examples of how, like, it, they're very similar characters, like, their roles in the film. And in Pan's Labyrinth, you can see that Del Toro has really, like, refined his storytelling abilities by just, you know, fleshing out a character probably that he wrote that he really liked and injecting it into another storyline. Yeah, the thought there might have been that he wanted to do more with her mm-hmm. in Devil's Backbone, and that here's my chance yeah. to take the exact same type of character and make her have a, a central role and do more with her this time around. I just wanted to uh, obviously talk about, I mean, we obviously mentioned about the fact that Del Toro likes to work with returning sort of cast members. Um, Federico Lupi, also known as the world's greatest actor, according to Del Toro, puts in a little bit of a brief cameo here as he plays the King of the Underworld and Ophelia's father. Um, a role I didn't actually notice until Kim pointed out earlier today. So, uh, <laughs> Thank you, Kim, for being the eagle-eyed one. I've seen this film quite a few times. I've never, I've never realized it was him until now. I had, I had this feeling. I was looking at it, and I was like, I was like, it's impossible that he's done like Pan's Labyrinth, which is like a big film that's super close to his heart. That he wouldn't use like his favorite actor in the world, you know. <laughs> and I was, and then I was looking through like doing research, and I was looking through the actors, and I was like, what? Federico Lupi. And then I was like, let me go check where this is. <laughs> I have to say, as the season's gone on, that I've just become such a big fan of his work. I have like, I can see why Dota loves him. to see if he like Mimic and Devil's Backbone and, and this film. And, I mean, yes, he's not really doing much in this film, but I'm just really happy to see him now. And he's like just this... He's like a, he's like this grandfatherly figure that uh, that you just want to... Just like the adopted grandfather in your life. You just think would just, like, regale you with interesting stories and 
have a constant supply of hard candy if you knew him. So, um, Obviously, the other main player here is Doug Jones, the only American on set in a complete Spanish crew. So that was great fun for him because he doesn't speak Spanish. Yet he basically had to learn all his lines in Spanish as well as Ophelia's because when he's what was he dressed as, the fawn, the servos would often be so loud he would need to know when she when she would basically finish talking so that he would know when he could talk himself. And while he would like ultimately be dubbed over by uh, Pablo Adam, who also provides the voice of the narrator, um, it did actually prove to be work that wasn't used in vain because it meant that it was a lot easier to overdub um, the Doug Jones's parts. But I think Doug Jones, again, he's just a master. He's like uh, Andy Serkis. He's just a master of practical effects and... It being playing creatures and just doing that sort of work, he's just he's just incredible. And I mean, here he's playing both the fawn and the pale man, and those those two roles are so completely different. And you think that it's just two different actors, but it's actually just Jones just doing his thing. And I, I think he's just absolutely outstanding in this film in both roles. Uh, I think he's really good as a pale man. Like that's that whole scene. I didn't. When I first saw it, I didn't have any, I didn't see any trailers. I didn't know what was going on. And I saw the eyes sitting on the plate. Okay, the eyes are on the plate. And I figured he's going to put them up, pick them up and put them where eyes are supposed to go. But he picks them up and puts them in his hands. It's like, oh, what is going on here? It's just, that's just a new level when, yeah. that, when that scene took place. I mean, he's he's pretty much blind when he's doing the play man. Because the only way he can see is out the nostrils of the costume and, those aren't exactly the biggest eye holes that he's got to work with. So it's just the movements he he has with these characters is just absolutely incredible. And just I mean, even when he's just like sitting at the table and he's like in this trance, um, you've got this foreboding sense of terror of his character. Not just the way he looks, which is really so grotesque to begin with, even before we see where he's going to put the eyes, but you get this like real sort of sense of danger to him and you can see with his his uh his greatest hits murals that he has on the walls of him eating children, you see the pile of shoes and you just know that something's gonna happen, you're waiting for the one thing to set him off and it's just the fact it's as simple as uh Ophelia eating grapes that that uh brings him out of his trance. But again, that's more disobedience because the fawn said, Whatever you do do not eat anything at this dinner, right? And of course, she disobeys and she starts eating grapes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, does that? Does, how does it? I mean, Kim, what do you think of obviously this this disobedient, disobedient sort of like heroism? I mean, how does it sort of resonate for yourself? I mean, are you sort of in the camp where it's sort of like all you had to do is go in and do this one task and you couldn't do that, or do you sort of think it? it adds to her as a character. I think it adds to her as a character because if she didn't do that, it wouldn't obviously, you know, it's a bit contrived because she has to do that in order for the pale man to be activated for us to see, you know, the scary guy in, in all its glory, you know, (laughs) but, (laughs) but it's just that, um, but it's kind of like, it brings into this innocence that she has, right? She's attracted by these things around her and she's still young. So she, she, she's enchanted by it. And this is like this, 
this world, obviously there's this creepy man at the table. <laughs> I'm not sure I would have wanted to eat anything at the table. But um, it's kind of like she's just enchanted by the table itself and the food that's there. And she just reaches out and she, in her mind, you know, I think that maybe kids think that way where, oh, well, it's not such a big deal. It's just a great, you know, what could happen? <laughs> and and then obviously, you know, breaking the rules means that there's this this crazy guy running after you <laughs> with eyes in his hands, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, the, I mean, the Pell Man is just Del Toro tapping into his love of fairy tales and mythology. I mean, the design itself comes from the Tenonome, which is a Japanese monster. Um, Tenonome means eyes on hand. So, uh, there you go. What what does everybody think about the two comparison kind of feast dinner scenes? Um, In one, with the Pale Man... Afia is not supposed to eat anything, but she does and gets in trouble. In the other one, that big dinner, she was supposed to be there to eat, but she was out doing this task. So got sent to bed without any food. And at one, you have your Captain Vidal sitting in the same spot where the pale man sits in the other um, dinner scene. That's a very interesting comparison. Yeah. You've got, obviously, the two figures of, of evil. I mean, do we see the Pale Man as a figure of evil? I mean, he's really sort of a guardian of the uh, a guardian of uh, that particular area rather than a sort of figure of evil. Yes, he does horrible things, especially if you're a fairy. Um, whereas, whereas the Captain, I mean, he's obviously this very obvious sort of figure of evil. And the scene, just that whole scene where he's like belittles Ophelia's mother uh, thinking that people would want to know how they how they met, um, I just thought, oh god, you're just uh, you're the worst person. And for <laughs> some reason, that just really resonated with me with this time, just when he like belittles her in front of uh, the officers and the priests and stuff. So, you but know, I, I think Del Toro there's trying to show that no matter what you can try and come up with in the fantasy world, real true evil happens in the real world with real people. I think that's kind of what he's trying to yeah. say there. With those two comparisons. Yeah, but, yeah, I, I I see, I think I see, like, once you mentioned, because I didn't think about the two comparisons um, until you mentioned it. Um, but as I think about it, the, in, in a certain way, the pale man and the captain can really be compared in their own way, in their own parallel. Because the pale man is very single-minded, because he only has that one goal where, you know, he, he has to protect that area. And he actually, and when you look at the walls, you see um, he kind of like, you know, eats children and stuff like that. Um, But if you think about the captain, he's kind of the same way towards children. He really only single-mindedly, he only doesn't, he doesn't care about his wife. He only wants the baby. He only wants, and he truly believes it's a boy. So he only wants a baby boy. And anything other than that, he's kind of like, you know, he's really mean towards uh, Ophelia right away. We already know that. And I think that in a certain way, you can really see those two comparisons in that, like, whether in these two realms, they're, you know, they're obviously I find the captain much more like because he, you know, in a certain way, he's consciously making these choices to be evil and to be a bad person. Whereas 
the pale man, I think it's just like maybe in, in that way, a monsters are engineered to be like, it's kind of like their nature to be that way. I mean, you think you hit on the head the fact with where the captain's true interest lies. I mean, if you look at whenever he enters the room and he talks to Ophelia's mother, he always opens with uh, Bienvenidos, please excuse my horrible Spanish, um, which is what you would uh, would say, obviously, in presence of a man or a boy. Um, which and it just it shows that he's addressing his unborn son. He's not addressing his wife. Um, he's he's actively just chewing in these scenes, and it's very sort of subtle. And it's why well, I love this when you sort of start deep diving into this film and look at the smaller details, just all these little things that you suddenly notice. Like when we look at um, the instruction of the captain, and he's fixing his pocket watch, and the room around him pretty much mirrors the inner workings of the of the pocket watch and it just gives you so many sort of like insights into his his character this meticulous sort of nature to him and as i said he's probably one of the most fascinating characters i go back and forth over who's my favorite villain in the del toro universe would it be like him would it be obviously the caretaker in Dolph's backbone or would it be like angel in chronos and um how does obviously the captain stack up in like the del toro universe in terms of being a villain I think he's right up there. I think he, I put him at the top. Like he's just, he's brutal. And, um, it also makes me wonder what, what do, what do we think about Carmen bringing her daughter into this situation? Like he's, he's, he's a psychopath. He's, he's, he's completely, he has no remorse. He has no feelings. He has his goal and, Nothing can get in the way of his goal. Like just when he shoots the doctor in the back, the doctor challenges him and says, "You know, I I can't just follow orders just by following orders." That for someone like you, and begins to walk away, and he just shoots him right in the back and kills him dead right there. It's just he's he's heartless and cold. Yeah, but um, for Carmen, I think that what it is is that. Carmen is, she says one line, I think, that really reflects why she brought everyone there, why she brought her daughter there. And that's the fact that she did it purely for survival, that she's married to this captain. She's having his son as kind of like a duty to be um, well taken care of, because it, she says to Ophelia at one point, she's like, life isn't a fairy tale. Life isn't like one of your books or something like that. I can't remember the exact line, yeah. but it's, it's like kind of like that that line that really like shows that, you know, she also, she's only doing this in kind of like a helpless way. This is kind of like she has no other choice. And this is the way she sees is the best scenario out of like, you know, you might as well be on the winning side kind of thing when, when the war is hitting. Oh, definitely. I mean, you look at what everyone else is. Everyone else is on rations where if she's married to a, a captain, she's going to be well taken care of, even though if he is a disgusting human being. And... She's well, she's a widowed single mother, so her prospects in 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 this world and certainly of the time period are going to be very sort of limited. And as you say, Kim, she's going to be taken care of by marrying this man, even though he's disgusting. And another sort of line that really sort of resonates in the movie is that when she she encourages uh, Philia to call him father, and she's like, "It's just a word. Um, you don't have to like have any sort of meaning uh, behind it. You just." Anything that she can do to sort of like secure her position 
and as you said, her survival. I think because that's basically what it is. It's just her survival. She gets put, she agrees to be put in a wheelchair just because she knows it's going to keep him happy. Um, even though she knows she can walk around and and look after herself, but you know he wants to keep her in a wheelchair and uh, because of her heavily pregnant and feels that she should just you know keep quiet into the side and produce the son he wants. So, but uh, I guess I saw it a bit different. I guess how I saw it was her best case scenario is some mental abuse and it likely was going to go to physical abuse at some point because he has no interest in her. Mm. All he cares about is a son. So Ophelia was always going to be in a bad situation. We got the ultimate where he shoots her, but she was never going to have get a winning hand out of the situation at all. But that, but I think that also justifies why like Ophelia, no matter how manipulative the fawn was, she was willing to take her chances in these scary tasks and really like take that risk and, you know, become the princess Moana, you know, get back to who she is supposed to be. And she believes this fantasy because it's a better world than what she's living in right now. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about the shooting style here, because when we look at the real world, it's shot in this very sort of, dark colours and this blue sort of tint and when we get into the fantasy worlds it's all very sort of vibrant colours and it's all very sort of bright um, and and such a, again we're also seeing this idea of these fantastical worlds hiding in plain sight um, which has just been such a reoccurring theme when we obviously look at um, we look at where the Pale Band's Palace is, it's basically within the walls of this of this uh, this this estate and all the other sort of fantastical layers like the tree with the giant frog, um, the la- entrance to the labyrinth, they're all within sort of the grounds. So they're just hidden very much in plain sight. Even at the start, we see like the stone marker, which um, Ophelia repairs, and this is just on the side of the road. Yet everyone else is sort of can't see it. They're just sort of to see the woods around them. They don't see these. Fantastical elements are just very much hiding in plain sight there. So, yeah, I think there again, Dotoro's trying to point out that uh, you know fantasy and your imagination is right there, but you have to look for it. It's right in front of you, but you have to take the time to look to find it. I also really like the part later on when you see the chalk outline for the door that she drew when she went into the Pillman's um, world. It's still there on the on the wall. I thought that was kind of a, a nice touch you went back to later on as well. I guess I did a bit of research as well coming on this. Okay. And um, the Pale Man, I did a bit of reading, and I saw that it's related to a Greek uh, kind of mythological figure called Kronos, which, of course, is the same title as the first film. And um, this figure ate all his children. So there's pictures of the same, like, where the pale man has the fairy in its mouth of this Kronos having various kids of his in his mouth that he's biting the heads off and eating them. So I thought that was kind of an interesting comparison. I don't know if that was being drawn, but people have stated that's kind of maybe also where that figure comes from as well. And also links back to the first film. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) We just talk about all the lightest of topics on the show, don't we? So, 
further viewing, if you obviously enjoy Pan's Labyrinth, what do you recommend to people to also sort of check out alongside this? Well, um, I, I, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I I, I thought about um, the other director, um, American, who delves into Fantasyland a lot. I thought about Tim Burton and how a lot of his movies um, tinge on Fantasyland. And I thought a bit about maybe Edward Scissorhands as a fantasy film. And then, of course, as though you're going to talk about it later, the obvious one is Shape of Water. That's the obvious one. But I thought about there's some Tim Burton movies out there um, that delve into this this world a bit in and out of the fantasy world and reality. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Edward Scissorhands was one that came across my mind. It's not on my list, though. Um, for my further viewing, it's actually a film that we did in the after hours, um, Sucker Punch. Um, when you said American director, I swore I, you were going to say <laughs> Zack Schneider, and I got scared for a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I think Sucker Punch really, um, I'm not like, you know, I've, I've changed my mind a little on the film since uh, my second viewing for the After Hours episode. Um, but uh, I think that this really works in the sense of, you know, that fantasy element and how the grim reality and that fantasy world um, really kind of intertwines together. That's a very good choice. That's an excellent film. Um, for myself, I've gotten to, I think I mentioned already, and that would be City the Lost Children. Um, I think it's... Uh, Again, it's another adult fairy tale where we've obviously got this crazy inventor who's uh, stealing the the dreams of uh, children. It's it's also stars Ron Perlman as a former well harpooner turned circus strongman who gets uh, caught up in the in this really fantastical adventure. And I think it's just one of those films that I would use as my entry point into Jeanette and Carol, either that or Amelie. Um, the more sort of out there choice that I'm going to go with and I'm going to say Kubrick's The Shining and the main reason I'm going to say, I mean they're two very completely different films but this idea of evil hiding within such a picturesque setting um, obviously with The Shining we've got the Outlook Hotel and we've got this sort of slow on crypt of evil and the sort of secrets hiding within the, the hotel I think that the two female, in terms of theme are very sort of similar there and I think it's uh, The Shining is one of those films that, as I sort of get older as a as a film watcher, I keep coming back to and I keep looking at it in different ways than I did perhaps when I watched it as a kid and just thought it's a straight horror movie and uh, got sort of kicks off Jack Nicholson running around as a crazy Zack murderer. So it's uh, that would be my really sort of out there sort of pairing for this film. But uh, definitely City of Lost Children, I think, gives you, especially if you like these fantastical films from... Del Toro um, is definitely one worth checking out. And I think just the whole Jeanette and Caro filmography is uh, a really good uh, sort of one to move on to once you've uh, watched all your Del Toro movies. So. Yeah, actually, I forgot um, because I actually had a second choice also um, for further viewing. I had mentioned this title before. It's um, a, a film I saw in um, Fantasia Film Festival last year, uh, and that's Tigers Are Not Afraid. And I think well, that I one really that. works. Yeah. That one definitely. I mean, I think that the director for that one, actually, she had mentioned that um, she was really inspired by Pan's Labyrinth in making this film um, uh, about, you know, a bunch of kids that are caught up in this kind of like gang war. Um, 
a gang-ridden Mexico or something like that. And uh, and and then there's this whole fantasy element of, you know, as they see these um, tigers being drawn on the wall and then there's this tiger fairy tale that somehow gives them courage. <laughs> and it becomes like this really heavy element uh, throughout the film. Yeah, there were some I, comments about that, yeah. that either Del Toro saw it and liked it or people were saying it was like a Del Toro type themed movie. I did remember hearing about that at the time. Yeah. Awesome. So I have one. I'll give you one that's uh, a little out there. Um, I was thinking a bit about Beats of the Southern Wild as well. Um, kind of a, dis- a depressing state of mind. Um, after all the bad stuff that happened in New Orleans and people have nowhere to go and you have this little girl with all these colors kind of living in a fantasy world with her dad. I kind of thought that would be a good kind of pairing of this as well. Hmm. well I've got two there to watch now. So thank you guys. <laughs> um, just having a quick look on the, uh, on IMDb, what they recommend pairing with this. And uh, I'm not sure where, I think they were just clutching at straws to this because they recommend if you like Pan's Labyrinth, watch Kill Bill volume one <laughs> or Beef of Vendetta, which the only link I can see between Beef of Vendetta and Pan's Labyrinth is the fact they both have fascists. Um, and uh, Braveheart as well, and yeah, that I don't watch those films. If you like Pan's Labyrinth, they're not, they're nothing like this at all. So ignore IMDb. Go with, uh, go with uh, the rec- what we've recommended there, and uh, you should uh, hopefully, hopefully find something you like. But um, this brings us all to the end of tonight's episode. Thank you very much uh, to Norman for obviously coming and joining us this evening. It's been great having you in the booth, and hopefully we'll get you back in again at some point. Yeah, I enjoyed it greatly. I'd be happy to jump on again. Um, If you want to obviously come and find your work, where's the best place to come and find you? Yeah, the best place to find me is my blog, uh, Flick Hunter, um, flickhunter.blogspot.com. Or you can find me on Twitter at at mixstay12. Fantastic. in the meantime, if you uh, haven't done already, please do uh, like or subscribe if you listen to us on Podomatic or iTunes or Anchor, wherever you happen to be uh, listening to the show. And please leave us a review. Uh, leave us a rating. It really helps the uh, show get out there and helps us expand the audience. And uh, if you uh, want to obviously check out any of our episode archives, you want to listen to the season one where we talked about Paul W.S. Anderson. Uh, if you want to listen to the After Hours episodes, you can check it all out on Movies in Tea podcast.wordpress.com uh, on there as well you can also uh, join in the fun of our Friday Film Club which is a new feature that myself and Kim have started and if you have uh, been following us on Facebook or Twitter you'll see where um, see us posting on there and asking you for your recommendations, let us know what you've been watching on Friday and uh, we'll share it in our roundup um, and so far we've had some really interesting double features to say the least because Basically, what happens is I pick a film, Kim picks film, and we normally don't know about what it's going to be until we send it across to each other. So uh, there's some really unique parents, and I think I'm really excited to see what uh, what we've got coming up. But, um, yeah, definitely uh, check it out uh, if you haven't done already. And, Kim, you've got a blog fun happening at the moment as well. Yes, um, I have the Ultimate 2000s Blogathon, which is going in there right now, which is going on right now. 
uh, where everybody shares their ultimate 2000s films, like new, like 2000 films that uh, 2000s films that from 2000 to 2009 that defines, um, you know, defines the 2000s for you kind of thing. Um, we have a pretty good roster. I mean, uh, one of our episodes is going to be in there too for um, Hellboy one and two. Our big episode uh, and um, it's going to be a lot of fun uh, like I'm really looking forward to you know what people how people react to all these different choices because obviously there are some choices uh, I know about that no one knows yet because not everything's been published yet um, that has really surprised me and um, we you know we expanded out we have um, a few different um, formats this time too some people are sending in editorials um, some people are sending in podcasts um, so it's going to be it's a, it's going to be an interesting one this time. <laughs> awesome. Uh, has anybody picked City of God? Has that come up? No. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> There's an opening for you already. <laughs> well, as I said, this brings us to the end of another edition of uh, Moose and Tea. Thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, on the next episode, Kim, where are we going next? We're going to 2013's Pacific Rim, uh, where we'll take a look at the war between humankind and monstrous sea creatures. Fantastic. Um, but again, thank you uh, to our special guest, Norman, for joining us in the booth. Uh, thank you, of course, to Kemp. And uh, this is Edward Jones, uh, just wishing you all a very good night. Till next time. <laughs>